Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and today's episode is called They Fuck You Up, Your Mum and Dad. Parenting's changed a fair bit since I grew up in the 1970s. In fact, the verb parenting only came into being in the 60s. Until then, it was just something that you were, not something that you did. Since then, it's fair to say the world's moved on. We've seen helicopter parenting. That's where parents hover closely above their kids, paying great attention to their every need, move and problem. And then we went yet further into snowplow parenting, where parents seek to remove all obstacles from a child's path so they don't have to experience pain, failure or discomfort. This style of parenting is also called lawnmower parenting and bulldozer parenting. And in Sweden, millennials are called the curling generation because absolutely everything has been cleared from their path by their parents. You see, ABBA didn't have any of that when they shot to fame at the Eurovision. Where are you getting your hair done? Well, now we're allowed to get our hair done, aren't we? So now if it looks nice, we don't have to say, oh, you know, I've uh, I've learned to cut my own hair. That's my guest today, founder of the Hoffman Process UK, Serena Gordon. The theory of the Hoffman has childhood and our formative relationship with our parents at its core. So here are some parenting facts before we kick off. Almost half of newly hatched storks abandon their nest to look for a foster parent who might feed them better. It's illegal in Iceland, the country that is not the shop, for parents to threaten children with fictional characters. In the shop it's mandatory. And the German word Sturmfrei is the feeling you get when your parents or flatmates are out and you have the place to yourself. I call it empty nest and I'm not the biggest fan. You had it done since the world reopened. Yeah, but mine doesn't look like I've had it done. <laughs> it looks beautiful. Serena Gordon studied at RADA in the same year as Jane Horrocks and they went on to become best friends. Serena then had a highly successful acting career with major roles in everything from The Bill to Midsummer Murders to a starring role alongside Piers Brosnan in Goldeneye. In 1995, she founded the UK branch of the Hoffman Process together with her then husband, Tim Lawrence, and they still run it together today. Serena and I talked about childhood, reinvention, well-being, parents, parenting, fame, healing, mind, body, and soul. But I started by asking her who her teenage pinups were. I had Elena Stasi, Woody Allen, and Steve McGarrett from Hawaii Five-0. Wow, that's a pretty that good really selection. <laughs> I had Adam Ant and Toya Wilcox were the main ones on my wall. So there you go. It's um, And I've ended up living very near the pub where um, Adam Ant came bursting in thinking he was still a high, highwayman um, and asking people to stand and deliver. So there you go. Things go full circle. Um, but yes, I shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't keep talking about our, because you're, you're, we're similar age, aren't we? We're both born in the 60s, Serena. Is that the most diplomatic yeah, way I'm to I'm very early it? 60s. I'm the time when Vivian Westwood had that shop on the, uh, on the world's end yeah. where Adam Ant's shirt used to be in the in the window yes um that's where I kind of grew up yeah so I was born in 1963 so I'm nearly nearly do a bus pass or whatever you get these days yeah well I should say when you said I'm early 60s you mean born early 60s you don't you you are not in your early 60s anyone who googles you will be like she looks bloody good for early 60s but you mean you were that's quite a good early 60s yeah yeah, but it's actually quite a good ploy to maybe lie up about your age, because then, as you say, people do say, God, you look fantastic. Yeah, I'm actually 75. It's amazing. <laughs> I yeah. used to do, when I first started stand-up, um, I was in my mid-40s, and I used to say, uh, you know, I'm in my 40s, and I'd get a sort of gasp from the audience who just didn't think I looked in my 40s. And then at a certain point, a couple of years later, I'd say, I'm in my 40s nothing everyone was like yeah so then I'd have to say I'm in my late 40s and get a bit of a gasp and nowadays when I say I'm 50 I don't get a gasp of any surprise so now I have to say I'm in my 50s in the hope anyone might go 
no, you're not. <laughs> so it's, yes. Don't you look amazing? That's what we want, really, isn't it? But we should. that's a good place to start, really. Childhood and wanting people to think we're amazing. Actually, you and I have something in common, Serena, which you will not know, which is that we both went to primarily boys' boarding schools in Dorset. So you went to a school called Bryanston, and I went yeah. to a school called Port Regis, which was a feeder school oh. for Bryanston. So um, given that the Hoffman, which I'll ask you to describe in a moment, um, very much looks at relationships with childhood and your childhood in many ways sounds privileged and lovely, but in other ways, perhaps there was a bit of another story. So tell me a bit about where things started for you in the world. Wow. Okay. So um, I think you're right. I, 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 and it took me doing the Hoffman process, I think, uh, whenever I did it, about 25 years ago um, in Canada. I did it um, because I was about to become a mother. Um, and I just really felt that it was a moment where I should really try and work out who I am and, you know, what kind of mother do I want to be? And, and you know, so I, I just I, I looked at um, my childhood. So, I, as you say, I was lucky to grow up in a... Um, in London, in a very privileged child, uh, with a very privileged childhood, I had parents who were divorced when I was four. Um, so it was I quite really unusual in the sixties, wasn't it? Divorce wasn't yeah. fashionable then. My parents were very young when they when they got together, and then they got pregnant, and and then they obviously just realised that they weren't in the right relationship. So there was a small period where I lived with my mum um, on on her own, and then they both got married to other people. So very early on I had step parents um so I got very used to going from one family to the other I was an only child as well so very very self-sufficient um and I went to boarding school very young at seven and and then as you say you know went on to be at an all-boys school um for my sort of sixth form time um but until that time I just my childhood was my childhood it wasn't something I investigated a lot or I hadn't done any therapy or anything about you know about my you know the dysfunctional aspect of it or moving around or you know lots of different parents I was just the 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 kind of child in the middle who um was like the peacemaker the mediator um you know being being quite appropriate I never wanted to upset anybody and I think sometimes children from divorced families might feel like this that sense that one family want you to have a good time and take you to a movie and things like that and then you go to the other family or I used to go then to the other family who'd say hey great we're going to go to see this movie and I think I've already seen that movie but I don't want to upset them Mm. so I'll pretend I haven't seen it And I think really early on, that's where I also started my kind of chameleon-like actor Mm. kind of beginnings, um, because I realized that I was I was always sort of merging myself to the environment and what people wanted from me. Um, So did you think you had to be perfect? Was it a bit about I've got to be the perfect little girl here and the perfect little girl there and I must never let the mask slip? Exactly that. And and occasionally it did slip. And there was a couple of incidents where apparently I used to throw shoes at my stepmother because, um, you know, it was just, I suppose, just a way of a you know six year old child expressing herself without words. It was Sounds just like the reverse of... plot of Cinderella, Serene. <laughs> yeah. No, it was there was I with this Serene, you know, when you've got a name like Serene. Yeah, that's a big well. thing to You're live up of, to. Yeah. But then there was the redhead bit. So, as you know, that's where the, you know, the, there's the, uh, the rebellious kind of, um, you know, there was a part of me that, yeah, suppressed all of that because I had to be the good girl. But then when I went off to my boarding schools, I found an outlet through acting that allowed me to um, then be far more expressive, far more creative. I mean, most of the time I was playing boys um, at school, but it just allowed yeah, allowed me to to express everything that I couldn't otherwise express in this very quiet, perfect um, world that I grew up in. And do you think the gap between, and we'll, we'll talk about this when we come on to talk more about the Hoffman, but lots of pretty famous people have done the Hoffman, lots of them performers and actors. And there's something about the gap between who we portray as performers and who we actually are. I think that gap can, there's a lot of tension in there, right? And And do you think that being an actor, you went to RADA, you were very, very successful as an actor for two decades plus. 
was that a way of enabling you to not really get close to what was going on and to keep living in this perfect exterior? Yeah, without a doubt. And I actually had to look up my, there's an IMDB record for me. And I actually did have to look it up because I, I forget so often, you know, as you say, this massive body of work that I did from leaving RADA in 1985. Um, but most definitely that was my, and I do see it in other actors. There are lots of actors who are really quite shy. I sometimes think some of the best actors and comedians are actually incredibly introvert, um, shy people um, who just have this alter ego um, and they can express themselves through that. But that also sometimes I think may lead to these desperate acts that some people take or the drugs or the, you know, the soothing mechanisms, whatever it is, because of, as you say, that tension between the, you know, the lonely, scared, um, you know, isolated or lacking in self-esteem real person and the persona, the, you know, look at me, you know, kind of showbiz um, personality. And, and that tension is just so exhausting, particularly on the body. I mean, the body really suffers. Um, and, and I think the more, certainly on the process, I think it's that bringing together of those two aspects of yourself so that you can actually feel grounded as one person. Um, and I know after I did the process in 1995, I thought I wouldn't be able to act again because I thought, you know, I was always playing grieving widows or wronged politicians' wives or sort of weird posh sidekicks to lots of nice comedian men. Um, but I always used, I used to think, God, if I can't cry anymore because I've healed that wound, you know, the little sad girl sitting on her bed after boarding school, uh, you know, holding on to her, her kind of glass her glass animals that I had in a little suitcase um, if I if I heal the wound of her then I won't be able to cry because I used my past as a sort of way that when I was crying on, on set and you go again and again and again and they say you know take 15 and you're summoning up uh, the tears and people used to say bloody hell how do you just keep doing that where does it all come from? And it's like I thought actually it comes from a deep, deep well of, of sadness and, and loneliness. So I thought if I heal that, will I still be able to act? It's you know, funny that, um, that I, I could. <laughs> if I was a if I was a psychoanalyst, there'd be something to say about the fact that a little lost girl took um, glass animals to be her comforters. But um, yeah. but I'm not a psychoanalyst. Um, although having done the, <laughs> the process with you, I feel a bit more equipped to understand those things. Um, so and it's interesting when you think about. I, I often say um, it takes a lot of effort to make things look effortless. So when I do kind of motivational speeches and stuff like that. I also, um, I, one of the lines in my last Edinburgh show, my show Invisible was that, and, and it's true, um, was that I, I, I get on stage and do this day in, day out because I find life off stage so very difficult. And I suppose that's something that lots and lots of performers have in common. But something got you then from being, you were still acting, when you, when you did the Bond movie, you were pregnant, right? So when you were herring around looking like the most glamorous woman in Europe, you were actually pregnant with your first child? Yeah, yeah, terrifying. And nobody knew because I thought I wouldn't get insurance. So um, Piers knew because we did spend two and a half weeks stuck up a mountain in Monte Carlo. Um, so he knew that. That's I not a bad the... gig, stuck up a mountain <laughs> in Monte Carlo with Piers Brosnan. I, I once had a drink with him and I still talk about that. So well done, yeah. you. <laughs> and he's such a lovely guy. And, and he's very funny as well. Um, and we just, uh, yeah, we sat there and the snow came down and then they closed the roads and we couldn't film. And then they wrote off the one of the Ferraris. So that whole bit was all stuck. But as you say, yeah, meanwhile, inside me, I was going through that whole kind of thing of thank God I didn't have morning sickness. So I wasn't throwing up all over peers. Um, but uh, but that that gestation period, as it were, was the period of post development for Goldeneye because we had to do a pickup a few months later in Neveston in a sort of cold storage warehouse where they had half an Aston Martin and a painted backdrop of Monte Carlo and Piers was there and, and they wanted to do a shot of him leaning over and kissing me um, and of course I turned up with this massive great pregnant bump <laughs> and the the costume woman Lindy Hemming she was like 
what the? <laughs> and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I couldn't tell you. So they ended up having to cut the costume down the back, stitch it across my breast. Um, and so when he leans over, he's actually, you know, he's got his hand on my belly. You know, uh, so but of course, then the fucking Daily Mail get, you know, like nine months after she's in a car with Piers Brosnan, Serena Gordon gives birth to this, you know, this little shrimp. Um, I think you could say they had to cut the Aston Martin down the middle. So at least it was only your, at least it was only your dress. Yeah, they had at least cut. my costume. But actually, strangely, my little son Ben, that little one inside me, he's an adrenaline junkie, and I quite often wonder whether it's because so young he was in this kind of really heightened state of of driving very fast uh, around the hills of Monte Carlo. So that's something he's got to, he can blame you for as he works through his own uh, issues with his own parents. So he already says, I don't need to do it. He already says I've been in a Bond movie. Um, And he already says, I don't need to do the Hoffman process because I was pregnant when I then did the Hoffman process. So he says he's done it. It's funny. I've got a far more vacuous version of that, which is I was just with my um, 21 year old over in Amsterdam. She's in her last year at uni and it was her 21st birthday. And um, uh, many moons ago, I ended up having a chance encounter with Hugh Grant. Sorry to any listeners who are like, can you two just shut up name dropping? But um, (laughs) he he came into There was a party. It was my goodbye party for work. And it was at Soho House. House and he by mistake came into the private bit we were having the party in and of course no one said it's a private party please could you leave um, anyway it then became clear that I was leaving I actually wasn't leaving to have a baby but I was heavily pregnant I was actually leaving to go to another job and um, and he ended up saying um, oh would you mind if I uh, you know would you mind if I touch your bump which I guess now this is 21 years ago maybe nowadays um, he'd be getting me too'd anyway I told my yeah. daughter about this and she was like she was like oh my god I've been stroked by Hugh Grant <laughs> <laughs> I said, please don't go out saying that. It's not yeah, how it yeah. seems. Um, but yes, so Piers Brosnan, Aston Martins and baby bumps aside. So that's actually when you set up the Hoffman as well, right? So that was a pretty busy time yeah. for you. Where you were setting it, was it up. It a really at, busy year. Because you celebrated yeah, and- 25 years of the Hoffman in 2020, which was a bloody awful time to choose for a big celebration, Serena. You timed that appallingly. We, we were planning this big party and everything like that. And then March, yeah, March hit. And I'd just gone to the States to have a holiday with my son. And we'd been in um, Nashville during the tornado, uh, the hurricane that hit. And, our, and the B&B we were in was sort of swaying from side to side. We then got involved in a shooting in a shopping mall uh, just outside New Orleans. Oh and I'd flown back to the UK for a little bit of peace and quiet. And a week later, we went into lockdown. So you're um, the unlucky leprechaun. That was your third bit of bad yeah. luck. And you've inflicted it on the rest of the world. We thought it started in China yeah, with a bat. And did, yeah. um, not that it's obviously, we should not be joking about something that's hit everybody so, so very hard. And as we're recording this, I should say this will, this will come out probably um, in, in June or July. But as we're recording it, we're just at the point where people are getting vaccinated and we're hopefully starting to reemerge. Um, and we'll talk in a moment a bit about what you did to support people during the pandemic, because it definitely was a bit of a lifesaver for me. And I'm sure for many, many other hundreds of people who joined you. But having mentioned the Hoffman process several times now, there will be people saying, could you please at this point tell us what the fuck the Hoffman process is? So how would you describe it, Serena? Um, I mean, in very practical terms, it's a seven day residential um, training program. Um, It's a personal development course. So, you know, it's not a replacement for individual therapy. Um, It's not a retreat or a rehab it's, it's just a, a, a place where you can actually work through, as I mentioned earlier, work through your autobiography, you know, let go of some of the shit and the baggage and the, you know, the number of people who come going, I just don't know who I am. I just feel that, you know, this, I'm stuck somewhere. I, I can't move forward. I, I've got everything that I should want in my life, but there's something blocking me. So that's the moment when people then come to the process um, and, and even though it's called the Hoffman process and we refer to a seven day residential, I actually think it's it's a process that's the process that lasts you for the whole of your life. You know, you're constant. We're just the the intensive crash course of, of teaching that happens. Um, the rest of it is is the implementation, you know, the falling down, the getting up, the, you know, learning to behave or react in, in different ways so that you can feel a little bit more, as I said, a bit more grounded, less, less hollow, less reaching out for, um, you know, things to soothe you or to divert you from your feelings. 
uh, it's very much about connecting yourself to your what we would call your true self um, without all the shit and the masks and the baggage um, and just finding a place of stillness in that you know in that connection but uh, yeah it is I mean something that I learned many many years ago is it's not a quick fix it's not just you know you've gone to something and somebody fixes it and that's it you've done it this is and, and sometimes we really do have to remind people about this that you know you have to keep practicing the stuff that you learn or you won't have any any change in your life you'll still be stuck doing what you're doing you know four years down the line so you know I expect to still be learning and growing and being aware and um, you know until the day I die it's funny you describe it as something that you have to keep sort of growing and working on because one of I did the Hoffman uh, the year I turned 50 so a couple of years ago and luckily I did it in the nick of time just before lockdown hit and I couldn't have done it and um, Emily Dean's episode of this podcast which I know you've listened to it was actually really I almost did the Hoffman two or three times and I kept pulling out because I found it so daunting and it was Emily's book Um, everyone died so everybody died so I got a dog that got me finally to do it and when I came out of it I remember um, Jeremy who was my brilliant brilliant person that was my main sort of facilitator who I did my smaller group work with and he said, it's, you know, you need to kind of look after this little thing you've grown on this course and, and work out what you're going to do next. And it was like, for me, it was a bit like a pregnancy. It was a bit like a little baby, something that was sort of growing. And, and it, it, for me, it, it sounds weird because at 50 it would be an unusual pregnancy, um, but mm-hmm. something that I just sort of wanted to kind of nurture and let grow and develop. And that I, but also felt safe, even if it's quite small, I know it's definitely there. It doesn't always have to yeah. feel big and be kicking to be there. And I, I I'll ask you in a well, I'll ask you in a second about who do you think the Hoffman is for? But doing it at 50, I know you have people from really young through to really old. Um, mm. Doing it at 50 for me, based on my gene pool and my family, felt like the halfway point. And I was so pleased mm. I did it that year. I thought I've had 50 quite difficult years behind me, as well as lovely years. And I've got another whole 50, or maybe not a whole 50, but optimistically another 50 to live with it. Namaste, motherfuckers. You talked about when you did it, um, and it was when you were a, a, about to be a mum. But who is it for? Who, who would do the Hoffman? I think um, I was talking to somebody this morning and they were saying how, you know, so many friends of theirs are now coming to do Hoffman. And the main thing is just they, they've noticed a shift in, in, in him. So I think, you know, people who come to are drawn to Hoffman, it's quite often word of mouth. It's because they know somebody like you were saying, you know, you knew Emily Oh, and had read her book, you know, Emily was drawn, I think she was saying, you know, because she was curious that Goldie had done it. And, and there's something that draws people. Sometimes we hear somebody heard about Hoffman 20 years ago, but it's taken them 20 years to get to that point of wanting to do it. Um, it's, it's a unique little time capsule, like a rite of passage. And as you say, whether it's because you're 50 at that, um, that sort of central point of your life where you go, I now want my rite of passage. And, you know, we're not in those cultures where to do your rite of passage, you have to, you know, go off in a, 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 on a full moon and, you know, kill a deer to show that this is, you know, you are now um, a, an adult. I think the, the Hoffman process is one of those things that acts as that, that people talk about before they did the process and after they did the process. And when I say, again, the process, I'm referring to the seven days. Um, and I think, the people who are drawn to it are therefore just something clicks in them. I think it's kind of like their little child or their spiritual self who goes, I need to do something with my life. I'm just fed up. We always hear this phrase, I'm going round and round in circles. I'm fed up. I'm feeling stuck. Or I'm at a crossroads, you know, which is that midlife crisis moment. Um, my relationship is I'm in a toxic relationship or I'm still on my own or my children have left home and I'm having empty nest syndrome or I've got illness and I'm, I'm you know, thinking about my death um, as I lie in my hotel, hospital bed uh, of how I want to be when I die. I want to get all my ducks in a row. I want mm. to sort things out, not have any regrets and get to that place of, of just, yeah, of peace, of going, whatever age I am when I get taken, let, let me be proud of the moment that I'm at. 
Yeah, I, the, the than, feeling of I don't want to go to my grave like this, you know, something I want something yeah. to change. Um, you and then it's really something that we look at on the process is really important. That I know you do. Yes, that's one of the darker grave? bits. <laughs> yeah, I won't, yeah, I won't, I won't spoil. I won't do a spoiler, a plot spoiler for any of the bits of the process. But um, you mentioned Goldie, and there were, there's. Uh, I think the Hoffman process has had its fair share of celebrity endorsements, not just because its origins were in the states, where I know they were a lot quicker on the uptake with self development and therapy than we are over here. Um, but uh, the celebrities who've done it include Elle McPherson, Annie Lennox, Jemima Khan, Tandy Newton, Naomi Harris. Um, and Goldie said, um, and I knew, I, I knew Goldie a bit, I really do sound like a complete dick on this, but because I worked at MTV for years, I've been um, yeah. in the same sort of after parties for Goldie back in the 90s when he was a slightly crazy individual. And there's a quote from Goldie saying, in the 90s, Goldie became this mad character. And I sometimes went a little too far, understatement. Um, I'd gone to rehab. I was getting beaten up for my sins three days a week and it didn't fucking work. It wasn't until I did the Hoffman process that the whole process of reinventing myself began. And there are numerous such endorsements. It's actually quite hard if you Google the Hoffman to find anyone who says bad stuff about it. Given what it is, it would be very easy to take a cynical pop at it and accuse it of being a cult or or, or say it's a load of kind of caftan wearing mumbo jumbo. So it's, it's a real testament to what you guys do that it doesn't have that kind of reputation um, in the press and in the outside world. But in terms of its origins, so it was founded in the late 60s by someone called Bob Hoffman, but he wasn't a sort of self-help guru, was he? No, he was just, and I think that's one of the um, essences of it, is that it's a very simple um, course. It's a very touching, very sweet course. And I think that's why people, when they've done it, um, even though we don't say to them, don't talk about the, you know, we just say, don't talk about other people on the course. You're, you're welcome to share your own experience with those around you. Um, but when people leave the process, it's almost like they have found that little secret and they want to kind of keep it to themselves. Unless you meet other people who've done the process, when there's then that sort of instant connection, you kind of go, wow, if you've gone through that and I'm meeting you, even if you're a you know, somebody in a big managing director of such and such, there's something that you know you'll have in common. There's Mm -hmm. like a little secret nod that you kind of go, oh, right, you and I, we get each other. Um, There are are also, there are loads of people, sometimes people get annoyed that we've got these celebrity endorsements and they kind of write in saying, I hope it's not a course, it's all about celebrities and you bang on about celebrities. You know, anyone who runs a business, you know that when people talk about you, and it's a life-changing experience for them. If they're willing, if they talk about it in the press, then there's an opportunity then to help other people who wouldn't otherwise have known mm. about it. And even though our website is stuffed full of really fascinating stories about, you know, photographers or those wonderful old lady who, or elder mature lady who did it, um, you know, who was a nun, and then and and then there are so many different people who are drawn to it. Their stories are all over our website, but of course, the ones that get picked up are the ones that are some of the names that you mentioned. Yes, I was going to say when I when I did, I assumed when I came that it would be, um, and this is a terrible stereotype, but um, as as a fifty two year old owner of two cats, I have no reason to talk of crazy cat ladies unless looking at myself in the mirror. But I did think it would be a bit of a sort of women of a certain age, um, or, or you know, sort of sitting around and you know trying to find themselves. Not that there'd be anything wrong with that by the way I can say that because I am a woman of that age but when I got there there were I was one of the oldest on it and there yeah. were some really quite kind of cool gorgeous people who weren't, um, weren't weren't famous people but um there were there were a couple of people who had a little bit of a profile on my one but mainly it was normal in inverted commas people but the editor of GQ magazine had recently uh done his piece on it and we'll publish all of this in the show notes and I think that had possibly opened it up to a younger male sort of demographic yeah um, and Cosmopolitan magazine, and again, we'll, we'll um, publish the link to this. They described it as the world's toughest retreat. And I might say it's an extremely positive article, actually, about the process and takes it through in quite a lot of detail. Um, anyone yeah. who this will be the last thing we say about celebrity endorsements. But um, I think in the headline or the byline of that article, it says you know, uh, that Justin Bieber left after just a couple of days, but Katy Perry loved it, both of yeah. which I think might encourage or not people to do it. But it, it, so the world's toughest retreat. So you said it's a kind process process which absolutely I would agree it is having been on it there is a kindness a support and a care that you feel safe throughout which when you Mm. think about what you go through 
is an enormous feat for the people who run the courses for you over here. But it is quite tough, even in Sephora. So it's seven days. It's mm. completely away from the outside world, right? You hand in your phone, your devices. You're not encouraged to bring, you're told, in fact, not to bring in novels. You literally surrender yourself deviceless to the yeah. hands of the Hoffman. Is that a fair description? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when people, about 10 years ago, people were really loath to hand in their phones. You know, it was literally sort of like, oh, you know, texting kind of as they handed it over. Uh, now I have to say people are just walking and going take it can't wait if it's one week of my entire life where I don't have to have that device that um, it's worth it and you know when the lead up to the process there's quite a lot of uh, conversations that we have there's a lot of pre-work there's a lot of assessment as to whether the time is right whether you know you're ready are you in the right place in your life can you delegate work you know so that you can clear the decks so that's a really important part of making sure that the people who are there are there for the right reason. And as you say, when Dylan Jones's article came out in GQ, it, it definitely opened out. We sometimes have more men on courses than women. Mine was like yeah. that. Mine was quite male and quite young, neither of which yeah. I expected. And people in their 30s coming, people from university are coming. There's always a certain type of what we'll always, that's why we have these interviews before anyone even kind of gets onto the course. Um, is to really check out that somebody's got enough stuff, they're enough emotionally aware that they've got the baggage. Um, and we go through the pre-course work, which is that big autobiographical questionnaire. It takes about eight or nine hours mm. to do. So you know at that point whether you're ready to come. And if someone's just going, I don't know, I don't know, I can't be bothered, look, my mum's paid the deposit or I'm coming because my wife has put a gun to my head and said she'll divorce me unless I come and do this course. You know, those are the moments where we will actually probably um, pull back and, and encourage that person to really know why they're doing it for themselves, not because somebody is sending them. Yeah, there was someone you know, on mine, and again, obviously all of this, in no way will this be traceable to who this was, but there was someone on mine whose partner had done it and it had changed his life and he'd been adamant she should do it. And she was the only person, I think, who really struggled with it. She did stay and actually she has since said she's really glad she did it, but it was because all of the rest of us were there. It yeah. was kind of not hard won insofar as, you know, everybody has to save money to go. It's not cheap. Um, yeah. I don't think anyone's got that kind of money. Perhaps um, Justin Bieber did, but most of us haven't got that kind of money to go, oh, I'll just try this. It's like yeah. a sort of very expensive holiday um, type of price tag, even though um, the actual experience is not is not like a holiday. Um, but it's interesting about your motivation to go and, and when it's your time. I know there's a sort of saying, mind your own process. And I think you get taken into the process at the time at which it's right for you I certainly yeah. very much felt that um so true and so, yeah, sometimes ahead, people no, even ahead. say they've um you know suddenly they were gifted the money um or you know companies sometimes will pay for people to come and do it but I think it's really important when people do make an investment themselves um and even if they have to pay do a payment plan or whatever just so that yeah that three and a half grand that it is now I mean, a lot of that also is VAT and, and accommodation, but it's a really important investment. And that's why, yes, it is tough in, in the Sophie Goddard's thing in, the, in Cosmopolitan saying the world's toughest retreat. I think it's because we don't know each other's childhoods until we're there. We only know our own. And even, even when I went into the process, I didn't really know my childhood. It, it, it all started to come up mm. as the process started to happen. As I unpacked the boxes and started to look into them, I started to go, oh, isn't that interesting? I hadn't realized that I'm a ple people-pleasing, codependent daddy's girl. Oh, and I hadn't realized that I'm always attracted to men who are distant because my mum was slightly distant. Oh, isn't that interesting? You know, all of this awareness was really starting to happen while I was on the process itself. Um, and then it's sort of putting all that together and then, as, you know, as we've said before, implementing it. But, I mean, I think when people come, it's as tough as they want it to be. If you really want your value for money and you really want to get your life sorted, then you are going to go as, you know, as deep and as uh, intense as you want to to go 
I mean, very rarely are there people who are just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, staring outside at, at the at the sunshine. I don't think you, know, you could actually, because it's yeah. I mean, I I know, and, and again, we won't we won't sort of um, spoil or disclose. People have been really good at not disclosing what the sort of various elements are, and I think that's so important because you, you it really is an experiential week. And if people knew what the stages were going to be, then your intellect would sort of take over, and you wouldn't be able to throw yourself into them. But in terms of just a couple of sort of headlines. So you you turn up in beautiful, you know, these it's all sort of beautiful locations, lovely nature around. I know nature and green is an important part of what you do. And actually you need it because it's so intense. I think you mm. need to be able to look out the window or walk out the door. So you turn up at this, in my case, Florence House in Sussex, beautiful location. Then somebody takes your phone off you, which I might say in your in my case was you, Serena. You took my <laughs> phone and I wasn't feeling at all happy to give mine over. I'd sat in the car like I was having a sort of lover's goodbye with my phone. But I handed it over to you, you put it in a bag and then you told me who I was going to share a room with. Now, um, again, worth us saying. So people do, you know, including famous people, you know, you, you share a room. You're encouraged mm. to have little or no makeup, designer labels. You basically sort of peel yourself back to the basics. I was absolutely terrified of the room sharing because I'd been um, so sort of scared and traumatised by boarding school. Um, mm. And actually, it was the absolute one of the very best things about it for me was the room share and the relationship I built up with the person I shared a room with and me mm. saying goodbye to the fact that I didn't dare share that kind of intimate space with somebody. Um, and I was uh, and for ever since I thought I can and I did. And I'm still in touch with um, the, the lovely person, um, I can say her first name, Avril, who I shared with. Um, mm. So you're in this beautiful location, great food, no phone. You're busy from early morning until late at night. You don't really have time to think about anything. You tend to sleep well because you're, you know, people who yeah. haven't slept in years will say they sleep well on the on the process. But the bit that surprised me the most, and you say it isn't therapy. Um, that it's self-development, but that it complements therapy and the results can be therapeutic. Yeah. The bit that surprised me the most, having spent my whole life in and out of therapy, was that it's not really an intellectual process. It's a quite a physical process, an expressive process. So, so say a bit about that if, you, if you're okay to. Yeah. So um, the Bob Hoffman had this thing about the four aspects of ourselves. And, you know, I think, as you said before, given that this was devised in the, in the mid 60s, he was very ahead of his time. Um, and looking at the intellect, the emotional part of ourselves, the physical body, and then our spiritual self or our kind of essence, our true self. Um, and to me, one of the, the simplest tools on the Hoffman process is that check in with those four aspects. So as you say, people quite often are coming to the process when they might have sleep issues, eating disorders, addictions, you know, um, they might have IBS or physical things, limitations, backaches, headaches, migraines. Um, and, and they're not really always aware that actually that might be something emotional that is being suppressed, that the body is then, you know, expressing itself as a way of saying, hello, help you know, can we sort this out, please? So there's a there's a kind of light bulb moment, I think, when when people come onto the process sometimes of actually really making that connection between the, their, their childhood stuff, their early childhood, the emotional stuff, the strategies, the exhaustion of the masks, as we've referred to, and, and the pushing down of all of that in order to appear like we're functioning. Mm -hmm. But the pushing down is causing huge um, uh, you know, effects on our body. And you get people like Bessel van der Kolk and Gabor Mate, who have written a lot now about trauma and about mm. how the body um, keeps the score in, in Bessel van der Kolk's book. Um, and I think people are so relieved to come to the process because they can physically let go, mm -hmm. physically and emotionally. And that's why a lot of therapists refer people when they've been in therapy for, they've done a lot of the talky-talky intellect mm -hmm. stuff. But at that point, it's got to stop. You can overanalyze and go round and round in circles and spend 40 years of your life going to the therapist and da, da, da. And then somebody eventually will go, get into Hoffman and get into the emotional feeling part of you. That little kid who is maybe lost, shut down, isolated, not seen, not heard, quiet, angry, scared get in touch with that little kid and bring that little kid up. So it, it grows up being guided by your, your mm -hmm. truer self, your bigger self. So it's like 
you know, bringing your little kid up in the way that we as mums have brought up our children um, and healing those wounds. And for that also, you need a fully functioning body. So yeah, every day on the process, we're out in nature, we're moving our bodies, we're using music, we're using, you know, the baseball bats and the and the cushions, because that even appeared on some Netflix series last yeah, year. Yeah, that's the one bit that gets talked about a lot is the, is the bashing yeah, uh, bags. Yeah, with you know, baseball bats. And it's bats. like, you know, and people afterwards, and where can I buy the whistle bat? Where can I buy it? Oh, I did um, not say that. I was like, if you never show me a whistle bat again, <laughs> it will not be too soon to my dying day. I don't want to see a whistle bat. For me, it felt like a real, um, the, the sort of two takeaways for me, I think. Well, one of them was the empathy I got for my parents. Not that I haven't always sort of loved my, my parents will definitely be listening to this. They, they're huge sort of supporters of the podcast. Um, but it wasn't, I haven't always loved my parents, but I'd not actually put myself in their shoes. And amazingly, it was only when I put myself in their shoes, I realized that they'd both had boarding school experiences, which were extremely formative um, in both cases involved not feeling they belonged in both mm. cases quite young um, feeling sort of probably very lost and at sea in these worlds and I, I had a real revelation about that and, and sort of empathy for them which was hugely hugely helpful um, but the other thing was on my very first day I think we were all asked to, to say a belief about ourselves or something I may be saying this wrongly um, and I remember just feeling I didn't belong and I even looked around the room at the other people the other 23 people who were going to be with me for seven days yeah and, and, and I had this sort of absolute conviction that I didn't belong and that became clearer as the week went by that it was actually a conviction I wasn't lovable if anyone saw who I really was and I came out of the Hoffman knowing that I that I was lovable and that was a huge revelation knowing that who I was as a little girl was lovable and again anyone listening to this is a bit more cynical perhaps hasn't done any self-development or therapy be like you know have you lost your mind but it's mm. amazing how that little scared bit of us that we do all have has a huge impact on who we can be in the world and who we are in our personal intimate relationships but also what voice we have in the world right I, I don't know mm. if any of what I've said sort of resonated with your own personal experience of the Hoffman Definitely. Um, back to what you were saying about the um, the compassion piece on the Hoffman. And it was a big piece for me as well in understanding more about why my mother was the way she was and why my father was the way he was, because I just had a love-hate relationship with both of them. Mm -hmm. And I thought that in standing up for myself and being a rebellious teenager and going off to live in New York and going to drama school rather than going to university, I was basically doing a big two fingers up to you. Mm. Ha, ha, ha. Um, even my choice of boyfriends were deliberately not somebody that my dad would have chosen mm -hmm. for me. So, but that was that exhausting bit of actually realizing that I was always just still rebelling against that that good girl um, that I was uh, that I was as a child and then I understood a lot about my dad and I was so lucky my dad was a sort of untimely ripped from us um, two years after I did the process he mm -hmm. was only 56 uh, suddenly of a heart attack and I'd seen him the night before and I was so grateful to have done the process because I, I was I, I could only say this to him when he was dead and Tim, my husband, Tim Lawrence, went to, we, he said, go to the funeral parlor. You have to see your dad's body um, and you have to touch it. And I was absolutely horrified by the thought of that because my dad was still so alive. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, you really need to do this so that you realize that his physical body has gone, mm -hmm. but his spirit will always be there. And you can communicate with that loving part of him mm -hmm. but but you have to let the body you have to realize that that's just a body that transported him through his life for as which long is as a very Hoffman pro, uh, sort of thought right oh, that you're, your spirit was, in the body that's what you are yeah, yeah and it was so important that moment of for allowing me to then grieve and let go because otherwise I would have still been thinking to this day he's going to walk through the room so that understanding also for my dad's childhood and then as you said the understanding of the, the sort of family system, how we can inherit stuff for generations and mm. generations. And if like those great series on TV called, you know, who is it called? Who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. or, you know, where they go back over, you know, a simple, simple thing of just writing your own timeline, you know, and then realizing how far back you can go if you do a little family tree and realizing, you know, I come from a whole lot of Scottish Presbyterian ministers so, you know, there's an awful lot of 
you know, um, sort of bony Scottish fingers pushing me in the back. And, and I kind of, and I, but I can look at those people and go, okay, that's who you are, but I don't have to carry that stuff with me. You've made a choice. I can choose to be, yeah, I can choose to be something different. And I think that's one of the rite of passage moments that people take at any point on the process is where they go, I now feel that I can be at peace. You know, that thing that you, you referred to on the, the previous podcast about, you know, everyone's guilty, but no one is to blame. Mm. You know, such a massive transition. This is about healing generations of families and allowing you to stand tall at the start of your new family or your, your you know, what your legacy is going to be. You know, that's the transition moment that the process um, acts as, I think, in people's lives. Um, and I know that one of my sons, you know, really wants to do the process. And he's now experiencing as a boy in his mid 20s, um, he's now experiencing a lot of confusion with the with the world. Mm. And, you know, friends of his who have unfortunately through sadness have taken their lives. And these these kids are so vulnerable. It's a very um, tough and, generation. I mean, that already the statistics yeah. around and particularly mental health for young men were already alarming. Yeah. And I think the pandemic's been incredibly tough on that generation. I know you do yeah. lots of work. I know you've described the Hoffman as from cradle to grave. And yeah. I think there will be a need, not just from you, but from many, many um, help providers in the world to look after that generation because a lot has been, um, they've been robbed of a lot. And um, yeah. I don't think I've ever known as many friends of my kids are now 21 and 20 um, I've never been aware of and I suspect because it didn't happen before of so many of my friends kids being on antidepressants needing therapy needing help um, kids that age so I think that's really important as well when we're thinking about this podcast and we do have lots of quite young listeners as well and it's not yeah. all about um, having being able to afford to go on the Hoffman but but knowing that that it's very very tough for that kind of age group um, Oliver James who's the author of They Fuck You Up um, lots of yeah. people listening will know the book obviously um, referring to the famous um, Philip Larkin poem um, but his quote about the Hoffman uh, or one of his quotes is it's the most systematic method I know for properly exploring the role of childhood as well as offering a motorway back from the past which I mm. thought was a very apt and, and lovely way to describe the process um, I've you've been very very generous in your um, of giving us access to your ample brain Serena in terms of telling us about the Hoffman um, mm. and indeed about uh, hanging out with Piers Brosnan on a mountain Namaste what would you pick as your namaste motherfucking life-defining moment? I think for that um, right now, the thing that I'm seeing is a moment where I, I've had a series of near drowning experiences. Um, and there was one where my friend Imogen Stubbs and I were doing articles for the Telegraph. We were in Sweden and we were doing an off grid, um, make your own raft and flow down a river uh, in the autumn. And we were sitting on the edge of this raft that we'd both built. We were on our own uh, with our tent and a little stove. And I was sitting on the edge with my waders tied into the, the belt of my jeans. And I just fell backwards. And I fell backwards into the um, river, the icy river. And I went down and the waders filled with water. And for a moment, I was just sitting on the bottom, just looking up at the water above me and looking up. And I could see the reflection of the sun and, the, and everything like that. And I was just like, oh, here we go again, me and water. And then the next thing, and thank God Imogen was there to verify this, the next thing I was back on the little raft. And neither of us know to this day how that happened. But it was like, and also I had waders full of water, but I was just back up there. And that to me was the closest I've ever had to one of those, I'm not going now, this is my moment. Um, and and I think at that point we we rolled a little cigarette and and just flowed down the stream, you know, kind of going with the flow. And I just remember seeing everything so vividly and just thinking, okay, this is one of those carpe that fucking DM moment mm -hmm. where you just go, okay, yeah. Yeah, so I the think comedian that, that's and we the one that just to ask what me. kind of little cigarette you rolled, uh, but that's yeah. uh, I'm sure it was uh, yes. So um, so yeah, and it is they say don't they that um, that drowning is the most peaceful way to go. Um, not that any of us uh, would know for sure, but um, yes, you sound like someone not to go on holiday with or build a raft with or do anything yeah, adventurous. No, with Serena, water. With shootings, water, tornadoes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that, that you're a bad person to have in orbit for somebody who does so much good to so many I'll people. I'll just stay. I'll just stay, stay on my chair. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll stay on Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> and what's your favourite joke? Uh, so I grew up, as I said, a fan of Woody Allen and everyone like that. But actually, in the end, my and Steve Martin, and I, in the end, my favourite joke is just um, a horse walks into a bar and the barman says, why the long face? <laughs> it's just it's just like yeah <laughs> um so i was out. lucky enough yeah to work with so one many of my comedians. gigs when the world reopens uh so yes yeah. I, I always like anything walking to a bar is a good one i think sometimes yeah. the jokes we have as well did your kids like that one when they were little because often the jokes that my kids yeah. thought were really funny i still love um yeah. thank you for that and the very last mm. question i ask everyone is if there was one bit of life advice you could give to anybody listening what would it be Gosh, um, right now, I would say uh, it's probably a cliche, but, you know, gratitude and appreciation for everything that you have, mm-hmm. um, you know, just finding that moment of peace. I mean, we do these, you know, quad checks on a Monday and a Friday. It's only 15 minutes. And I know that it's changed people's lives, as you said, through the pandemic. Some of the things that we did just through the power of, uh, of Zoom. Um, of just allowing people to connect with that, that, those four aspects of themselves and feel gratitude. Yeah. Brilliant. Be. Thank you, Serena. And we'll put in the um, show notes as well. I know there's the Hoffman app. So people who haven't done the course might still look at the Hoffman app. And actually the quad check you referred to, um, I, I sort of discovered mindfulness a few years ago. I mean, I didn't invent it, but I personally got yeah. into it a little bit. And um, yeah, the quad check is also sort of another way of doing a sort of 10 to 15 minutes bit of mindfulness every morning. Yeah, and actually our essentials, We one of the things that came out of lockdown was also our two-day essentials. So for people who can't fully afford the process and things like that, we now have a two-day weekend online course where we can at least teach you the essential aspects of mm-hmm. Hoffman. Um, and that's been massively popular. So it's a good thing that brilliant making it well, affordable. We'll, we'll put all the links there. Gorgeous. And I should say I'm not Thanks, on any babe. kind of commission. Uh, this is all done I know. because <laughs> I like I was Sorry. very moved by doing the, the Hoffman, which is why I wanted to talk to you. Um, so thank you very much, Serena, for joining me on oh, Namaste Motherfuckers. <laughs> That was the inspirational Serena Gordon. Now, every episode, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to try. And this week, that's pretty straightforward. So Serena talked about how doing the Hoffman process is just the start of all the self-development work you do. And it's important to keep putting it into practice. So hands up, I've been doing that with varying degrees of success and commitment since I did the process myself 18 months ago. So right after this, I am going to go and dig out my folder from my week at Florence House which is where I did my process and I'm just going to have a little leaf through and see what's in there and maybe it will help me navigate breakups, empty nest and all the other crap that is frankly going on at the moment. There's a link to the process and all of its uh, resources in the show notes. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me Callie Beaton and was produced by Mike Hansen and Karu Shadami for Pod People Productions. Music by Jake Yap. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. Not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation, but because it helps other people find the show. And that is it for the show for this week. Thank you so much to Serena for joining me. We will be back in your feed next Monday, as usual, when I will be talking to my lovely friend, comedian Stephen K. Amos. If I honestly thought that every person was wicked and mean and horrible, I wouldn't be in this job. Why would I put myself in a situation where I could be torn down? I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Mm-hmm.